0: Good to see you. Reach for your Bibles, please. And turn to Matthew 22. is one of the primary passages we're going to have here. And And uh, Megan, just before you go down, I know when you started the service, you said that uh, you talked about the Connect Form. Of course, Beverly being here last week. And I just need to tell you, I think she's the secret sauce to this because uh, we've had a peak in Connect Form submissions in the last couple of weeks. So thank you to everybody for responding, but also I think we need Beverly every week. I think if we can... Do that, that'd be awesome. That's awesome. All right, yeah, let's go let's, for Beverly. Well, good morning. Uh, good to have you here. Good to be with you uh, in the room and on the live stream. And uh, again, we're going to be uh, in a few different passages because we're in this, uh, this series on the church called We Are Harvest. And for the next two messages, actually, we're going to talk about love. And um, I, can hardly, I can hardly think of a topic that we are more confused about. Uh, this topic of love, we misdefine the word, we fail uh, to recognize love when we see it, at best, at best we misunderstand it, at worst, we completely pervert it. Uh, We can apparently uh, fall in love and also apparently fall out of love. Uh, today, we often hear uh, the phrase, love is love. The Beatles sang, all you need is love. And others sang the song, love makes the world go round. And while those are wonderful, catchy songs, and I would just hesitate ever to disagree with the Beatles, <laughs> but the reality is, all of those songs and that little phrase, all of them promote a certain socio political point of view. They have an agenda. And and in fact, when you look at those phrases, they're aberrations of what God intended when he created us as human beings with the capacity to love. The right definition of love, not to mention, not just defining it, but, but living it out, has critical implications for the church because we know from 1 John of 4.16, that God is love. Three very simple, very short words that are packed with meaning for us. And when we understand that God is love, when the church gets it, we understand that the world takes notice of that very thing. And so how we demonstrate love as individual Christians, but also as a church collectively and to each other, All of this matters. All of that is actually missional. It's part of the thing that God has given us to do in this world. So we are, for example, we're going to see in this passage, we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're to to love those neighbor, we're to love those that God has put close to us. You work with your neighbor, you live beside your neighbor, you're in family relationships with your neighbor. People that God has put close to you, we're to love our neighbor, but also, because that's going to include people who are outside the church, but also, John 13, 35, by this will all people know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So, love inside the church, how we treat one another is critical to an unsaved world looking in and seeing something that's attractive. And I feel like during this pandemic, we may not have done a great job of that. You know what I'm saying? Just nod your head so I don't actually have to preach that sermon because that's not in my notes. And in fact, this whole idea of loving one another, loving our neighbor, that's, la- that's next week's message But the whole thing is really what we're talking about this week in terms of loving God and next week loving people is really two signs of one coin. Love God, love people. The two commands are so closely knit together and are the two most important commands of Scripture as we'll see in today's passage. We've emblazoned those four words, love God, love people, on the wall, just on the other side of this wall in the West Lobby. Because those are the two most important commands we'll ever receive. And so the series that we're in here is called We Are Harvest. And last week we laid a foundation, Jesus Christ, in this second message. We're looking at our love for God, our aspiration in all of this. These are not declarative statements so much as they're aspirations. We love God. We are harvest. We love God. That's our goal. It's what we're reaching for as a people. And so a great starting point for that is Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40, which really cover uh, the two messages this week and next. So let me read this passage, and then we'll get into this. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, I'll pause there just to say those are two like parties or denominations within Judaism. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Everything else that we are as a church hangs on these two commands, starting with this first command to love the Lord our God. So here it is in your notes and on the screen. We love God first with all that we are. We love God with all that we are. Now, again, this religious leader, this Pharisee, and by the way, just so we understand the differences between the Sadducees and Pharisees, I've talked about this before, but the Pharisees are like the, if we were comparing them to today, they're like the conservative, Bible believing, church going, you know, holy living, evangelical believers of their day. They loved the Bible, they loved worship, they loved God, they, 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 they sunk themselves deeply into an understanding of God's Word. Uh, they are best represented by our tribe today, uh, that's the Pharisees. Um, they fell into a, a, such a strict adherence to the Mosaic Law that it ended up being the law plus, 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 so they added on so many other rules and regulations about the believing life, that it became very legalistic within uh, the Pharisee group. And there are many, I mean, you would know, and some of you have come out of those backgrounds, there be many Christians like that today who it's the, it's the Bible, plus, plus, plus all kinds of other rules and regulations that would make you a good Christian. And so that's the Pharisee. So he comes with a question about the law, and he asks, what's the, what's the great commandment? what's the the number one commandment we should obey? And we're going to come back to that in just a moment. But Jesus answers him and says, verse 37, you shall love the Lord your God, notice, with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Three things he identifies there. And and this is what we know as the great commandment. Uh, Three other passages also have the great commandment in the scripture. It starts... um, First of all, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Shema passage, where the a pious practicing uh, Jews would, uh, th- along with this and some other passages, recite this twice a day, um, being faithful to God in those ways, having this as kind of a liturgy, but then two other gospels have it. In fact, let's compare uh, each of the spots where we have the great commandment. Starts again, Deuteronomy 6, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and notice might, then uh, Matthew, where we just read, it's heart, soul, mind. Mark, which is the earliest of the Gospels, adds a fourth one. Jesus, when he, uh, when he says it and how, as Mark records it, heart, soul, mind, mimicking Matthew there, or rather Matthew mimicking Mark, and then adds the fourth strength, which ties in with might back in Deuteronomy 6. And then Luke, uh, almost paralleling Mark, but flipping the last two, heart, soul, strength, And mind, and so the Holy Spirit. Here's what we can just say about that: the Holy Spirit inspired, because the Scriptures are inspired by the Lord. The Holy Spirit inspired uh, four different versions of the same command, four different slightly altered wordings of the same command. And we might step back and go, like, why? Why isn't it precise? If it's the first and greatest commandment, shouldn't it be precisely stated the same way every time? Well, that would be legalism, by the way. So to answer that. We have to be willing to set aside this need we have to have the precise words in order to see the divine intent behind the words. It was spoken in different ways on different occasions, which is evidently um, what God intended for us, and again, more important than the precise wording. And, And so we want to get at the heart of what's being said here in the great commandment. We'll get to that. So so we're not going to take the three or four words that we have in each of these passages and try to use that as a detailed breakdown of how we're supposed to love God. That is to say, you know, with, with my heart in this particular way, because this is what the heart is, or with my soul in this particular way. The distinctions between words, in fact, are not even always that clear. To make a distinction, for example, between the heart, which is part of the immaterial part of a human being and the soul, which is also part of the immaterial part of a human being, becomes pretty difficult just to identify what exactly we're talking about with the heart as opposed to the soul. They could sound like they're the same thing. Now, most commentators, when you're reading about this passage, most commentators actually will say something like this. J.A. Brooks said it this way, but most of them would say the exact same thing. The piling up of the terms heart, soul, and mind is just a way of saying with your whole being. Just bring your whole being. So sometimes Jesus said it with four things and sometimes he said it with three things and sometimes it was in a slightly different order. doesn't really matter. What he's really saying is you got to worship, you got to love God with the whole of, of your being. And it's not intended to designate the component parts of human nature. Now, that said, and it's well said, that said, to love God, to love God with our whole being, as Brooks says, still requires me to think through the component parts of what I am as a human being and to allow all of those component parts of who I am to love God. And so I think about the component parts of who I am. I know that I'm a physical being. I know that I'm a spiritual being. I know I have emotion. I have a mind. I have a will. Those are the component parts that everyone would agree, are part of the makeup of who we are as human beings. And in fact, some of those things make us very distinct from the rest of the creation. Very distinct from your dog and your goldfish. We want to think through how we love God with all the component parts of who we are as human beings. So the the component parts matter. So we love God, so indulge me now. We'll go through these four words. We love God with our soul. The original language word in the New Testament, the Greek word is psyche. We use that in English. With our psyche, it's the immaterial. The soul is the immaterial part of who we are. It's it's loving God from the depth of our being. It's it's uh, It's the eternal part of who we are. It's the sentient part of who we are. It's, it's, part of, it's a big part of what makes us distinct from your dog or your cat. Secondly, uh, we love God from our heart. Speaking to our affections is to say that our desires are for Him. Is your heart for God or is your heart for something else is a pretty common way of talking about loving God. Matthew chapter 6, we have this great understanding of, of, of money, and, and it's not money's not the problem. It's love of money. Are your affections for money, are your affections for wealth and possessions rather than for God? Jesus saying, you can't love God and money. You just can't love those two things. Are your affections for him or not? Is your heart, Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 6, like where your treasure is, there your heart is also. So where are your affections? are your affections for the Lord. This also speaks, I would say the heart also speaks rightly um, to our emotive side. Because our faith is not a sterile, emotionalist uh, pursuit, a set of beliefs, but it's deeply felt. Part of who we are. That that too, our our emotions are part of the Imago Dei, the image of God that He uh, made and put into us that reflects His own heart as well. And so we should bring our emotion to the love of God. So soul, heart, thirdly, our mind, our intellect, our thoughts. We love God better when we know Him. We love God better when we spend the time to get God's word open, to look at its pages, to look at these words and seek to understand them. The more we understand him, the more we can love him. I had a professor who said, and I've quoted him many times, every time you crack the book, you're staring into the face of God and you're learning more about him. And as we learn more about him, spend the time to do that, We're demonstrating our love for him. Then, fourth, a might or strength. We love God in physical ways, visible ways, tangible expressions of love. And so, all of this represents the component parts of human beings, it represents the whole of our being loving our God. Do you love God in that way? And I think it's easy. I put easy in quotes here in my notes, but I think it's easy to see how this applies to us as individual Christians. Um, but let's think about that in terms of the church because that's the intent of this uh, series. This means that what most consumes us as a church ought to be the love of God. It ought to be the love of God. The greatest thing, the greatest thing that anyone outside the church could say about this church is they preach Jesus Christ and they love God. And I would want every person who thinks about harvest in this community would say they preach Christ, whether they agree with that or not, that they would know that we preach Christ and that we love our God. And when that's true of us as a church, that affords us this protection around us. When we have that as the defining features of who we are, that protects us from all this coercion that's happening from the world that's, that's a, that this force that's being pressed against churches all the time. We won't be in danger if we, if we emphasize the preaching of Christ and the love of God. We won't be in danger of, of falling of following into the world's ways or abandoning the truth of God's word or being distracted by things that are not the gospel. So many churches fall into a distraction away from things that are related to the gospel. And we must remain centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our love for God as a church must be so all-consuming that we are willing to make any sacrifice and to suffer any injustice rather than compromise or abandon Our love for Him. So this comes to us as a severe warning. And in the book of Revelation, which we're going to study um, a couple of months from now, uh, we're going to get into the book of Revelation. And the, the chapters two and three are seven letters to seven churches, five of which had severely lost their way. One of which is told that they lost their love, they lost the love they had at first. And so these warnings are important to us as a church because it's so easy to lose our way, to abandon our love for him. And so practically, we love God by teaching about him. Again, I'm thinking about the church. We, we love God by teaching about him. We love God by worshiping him in song as we just did. We love God by praying to him. I had a wonderful conversation this week with a man I'd never I've never met. I just First time talking to him was on the phone this week, and somebody who's kind of connected to our church but lives out of the area said, I have this friend in Barry, he's dying, would you be willing to um, just give him a call and minister to him? Pastor Rogers had some contact with him, and I had some contact with him this week. And so cold calling a man who's dying of cancer who was a professing non-believer. Over the course of the conversation, became really clear that he's, he is actually a believer, and he's only recently found his faith as he's facing his own mortality and the and, uh, prognosis, not being very good with his cancer. And so then I did the thing. We had a long conversation, got to know each other a little bit, talked about what he's going through and all that, talked about faith, and it became clear that he is a believer. And, and then I, you know, I did, the very, very new in, in his faith. He's a few years older than me and very new in his faith. So I'm not expecting him. I'm not expecting anything else other than I'm going to say, hey, look, let me pray with you. And then hopefully we'll be able to talk again. So I'm going to do the pastoral thing. I'm going to pray for him. So I do, I pray for him. And then I'm expecting, you know, the amen. Hey, it was nice talking to you, da, 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 da. And he prays. And the thing I loved about it, because prayer is just a conversation with God. And if you love somebody, you want to spend time talking to them. And prayer we all find is so hard. And this man who's so new in his faith, broken, dying, thinking about all he's losing. And he just entered into this wonderful conversation with God. I was humbled by it. The best part of the conversation was listening to him pray. And that's what God wants. Like when we love God, and this man just loves God because he's nearing the end of his life and he knows he's, he's going to go and spend time with him, it's the only thing that's bringing him any peace right now. And we have to get to this place where we're praying to God, loving God by just talking to him. Witnessing to others. We love God by witnessing to others about Jesus. And, and we're going to see more, more practical expressions of our love for God in next week's message as well. All right, we love God with all that we are. Secondly, see this by obeying by obeying the great commandment. Now the question that this lawyer brings this pharisee verse 36, teacher Which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus replies to him, verse 38, this is the great and first commandment. Now, notice it is a commandment. That's what we want to talk about here. The key word here is obeying the great commandment. And and when we talk about it being first, when Jesus says it's first here, it's first in terms, not in terms of order, but in terms of priority. In other words, this commandment that I'm talking to you about right now is the preeminent or most important commandment of all the commandments. Now, when he asked the question, his intent, as the passage tells us in verse 35, is to test Jesus, because Jesus' preaching was so radical. Again, these Pharisees had fallen into an institutionalized form of Judaism. It was all rules and regulations and policies and procedures, and a deep passion and love for God had long departed the temple. And so, this Pharisee comes asking his question from a a place where he wants to test Jesus because Jesus is preaching this gospel of love and grace, of simple faith before the Father. And it was upsetting those who were in charge or part of the institution of Judaism. So, they're testing him, they're trying to chip him up, they're trying to find a way to, to end this gospel preaching. For the Pharisees, it was strict adherence to the 613 laws. That's what was paramount. And so they're hoping to trip Jesus up. Which laws, Jesus, are you going to undermine and demean by saying this other one is more important? Which is the more important law? Is it the dietary laws? Is it the sacrificial law? Is it the Sabbath laws? Is it the tithing laws? Which one would be most important? This is relevant for us because last week in the first message in the series, we we examined Jesus as our foundation. but We talked about a chart that showed the primary, secondary, and tertiary beliefs and practices of our church. And that chart is rooted in the love of God. Because we don't ever want anything that's on the secondary list or the tertiary list to end up creeping into a primary list where we're now taking things that are much less important to God and elevating them and and keeping people away from an understanding of the gospel. We have to keep focused on the love of God. We clearly identified what's most important so that we don't become obsessed and sidetracked by lesser things as the Pharisees had. And so that we don't end up preaching a distorted gospel of legalism. And so this question's a great question. What's the most important thing? And by the way, Jesus affirms the question, esteems him for bringing this question. Because it turns out The most important commandment is to love God. And we can make no mistake that this actually comes to us with the force of a command. Salvation, for sure. Please understand, salvation comes by faith alone. That's the essence of the Reformation. But once we say Jesus is Lord and Savior, once we come as individuals and and commit our life to him, then the ethical demands of his righteousness are placed on us. The mission that God gave us in this world is placed on us and entrusted into our hands. And these are the things that now must consume the life of the new believer. Kent Hughes, another commentator that I read in preparation for the message today, said this, It does not take much of a man to be a believer, but it takes all there is of him. Just pause and think about that. It does not take much of a woman to be a believer, but it takes all there is of her. Initially, we come with simple faith. That's all we come with. And we are saved on the basis of that faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone message. But once we're in, once we become the followers of Christ, consumes every part of who we are, all the component parts of who we are. And so loving God will then flow from a place of genuine heartfelt gratitude and relationship so that now that I'm saved, I want to obey him. I want to love Him. And so the command to love God, it's not burdensome at all. I'm not at all feeling like I'm being forced or compelled against my will to love God. I want to love Him. The Apostle John actually wrestled with this in 1 John 5, verse 3. He said this, for this is the love of God. And, And when you understand the whole of John's letter, this is our love for God and God's love for us and our love for others. He covers all of it in 1 John. For this is the love of God, he says, that we keep his commandments. Notice his commandments are not burdensome. They're not hard to obey. I want to obey God by loving him. Or if you prefer, I want to love God by obeying him. It doesn't matter which way you say that. It's going to work. And I do so, notice this next in, in your outline. I do, I do so with an understanding that he is love. He himself is love. In order to grasp this concept, we, we move from this great commandment passage that we've been looking at in Matthew 22, move now to First John chapter 4, and in 1 John chapter 4 verse 16, here's what we read. We have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us, and then three very simple words, three very small words, God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And, and what, you, what you see in that verse is, is the fact that God and love are just inseparable, They're bound together. God is the embodiment of love, and God is love's most precise definition. And His love is demonstrated most clearly in the provision of His Son, the provision He made for us to be saved, the provision for our sins to be forgiven, and for that condemnation of death that hung over us to be erased. Romans 5.8, Paul wrote, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The ultimate expression of love, God's love for us. God is love. He embodies love. So we think about the symbols of love and we immediately run to the heart. I mean, we're a few weeks away from Valentine's Day. This will be the preeminent symbol of love in Facebook posts and Instagram posts and people still buy greeting cards. Do people still buy greeting cards? If you go to a place that sells greeting cards, hearts, 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 hearts. hearts. Red hearts. This is the preeminent symbol of love But it only represents, as we've seen, it only represents one of the component parts of what it means to be a human being. And if you only have that one component part, you have a weak expression of love. Valentine's Day, at best, promotes a romantic love, which is so, so shallow. So, we need to forget the heart as the symbol of love. I have no notions of upending the whole Valentine industry. Forget the heart as the symbol of love. The cross has always been the more fitting symbol of love, has it not? And in saying that, in making that comparison between the heart and the cross, This is the reason why the unbelieving world around us us struggles to understand love. It's because the unbelieving world around us fails to understand God. And God is love. And beyond that, not only failing to understand it, but the unbelieving world actually flat out rejects the notion that God himself might be the definition of love. They don't want to hear it. So for unbelievers, for those outside the hearing of God's word, love is conflated with sex. Love is conflated with emotion. Love is conflated with changing circumstances. And in the case of that contemporary mantra that I said off the top, love is love, it becomes something that's in conflict with everything that is true and natural about being a human being. Now, a church, in contrast, that has the gospel as the center and Jesus as the foundation and God's love saturating every aspect of the ministry, that church will tell the truth about these things and proclaim a gospel of life and will do so even if it's costly to do so. In fact, Paul said, dealing with this very issue of how we proclaim the love of God, he dealt with this in Ephesians chapter 4, writing to that church, and he explained that the church has given leaders, it's given pastors and teachers and evangelists, it was given uh, apostles and prophets, to keep the church, Paul says, this is Ephesians 4.14, to keep the church from being tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. In other words, the temptation, I wouldn't even say the temptation, but there is a force pressing against the church every minute of every day to push us off course and away from from gospel centrality and from the the love of God. It's, It's like we're in the river and the current is constantly pushing against us to get us off course. And to that... God sends leaders, teachers, pastors, prophets, evangelists who speak the truth, Ephesians 4.15, who speak the truth, how? The verse says in love. Speak the truth in love. Even the truth itself is rooted in the love of God. We speak truth into the lives of Those who need to hear it, we do it out of love or or motivated by love or because of love. That's the sense of speaking the truth in love. And in that regard, to not speak the truth is an inherently unloving thing to do. If you withhold truth, I just don't want to offend anybody, I don't want to hurt anybody. It sounds loving. But not if you're withholding something that needs to be said. So we speak the truth in love. I was a very uh, new Christian in my teen years when someone uh, took me to First Corinthians chapter 13 and you'll I'm sure uh, if you've been around the Bible at all, you know 1 Corinthians 13 verses four to seven and the passage the paragraph there that describes love and understand the entire context of 12 13 14 in first corinthians is about spiritual gifts and so the passage is not primarily about the about love it's not primarily about the love of god it's about the practice of the gifts in the church how we do that and the fact that we could have the most spectacular gifts but if we don't use them in a loving way they're useless it's a clanging symbol that's the context of those three chapters but in the midst of this the, the gem, the jewel in the midst of these three chapters, these, these, these verses that describe what this love should be like. And when I was a young Christian, someone I can't even remember who took me to these verses and, and said, here's, here's something that, that you can do with these verses that really help you apply it, to understand them really well and, and how to live this out in your own life. A year and a half ago, I preached a message uh, back in 2020 It seems like a decade ago, um, I preached a message and we we did this with this passage. I want to do it again, but in a slightly different way. And I think it's just so helpful to do it. But here's the original here. Just understanding that God is love. Okay. here's Here's what we read about love. The original is this. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now here's the alternate. Because God is love, we can easily swap the words and we can just read it this way. God is patient and kind. God does not envy or boast. God is not arrogant or rude. God does not insist on his own way. God is not irritable or resentful. God does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. God bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Because God is the embodiment of love, and that's the starting point for everything else. On this command, and the other one that's just below it, the love your neighbor, on this command, everything Else hangs. Now here's the conclusion to it. This is the somewhat shocking ending. We love God. This is the outline as we've gone through it now. We love God with all that we are, obeying the great commandment, understanding he is love, and because he first loved us. We love God because he first loved us. In other words, any capacity that we have to love, to love him, to love others, to receive it, to show it, comes from God in the first place. I mean, sin is so tainted the world that we live in and we're so given to our own depravity that we have lost all sense of what it means to be loved. So we go looking for love in all the wrong places. More song lyrics. We don't know how to love. We love people in the wrong ways. And when in our own strength, on occasion we do get it right, because I'm not saying there aren't genuine manifestations of love, examples of love that we would all experience and be a part of. That can happen. But all of that is something that we call common grace. That's just like, getting it right because God allowed us to get it right, because God has saturated this world. When anything good happens in this world, it's the common grace of God that allows believers and unbelievers alike to do some awesome and amazing things. It's still the grace of God. It's the residual image of God at work in human beings. But here it is, here it is. 1 John 4, 19 the apostle says this, we love because he first loved us. We love God because he first loved us. We love each other because he first loved us. Brooks, who I quoted earlier, one of these commentators, makes the point that the New Testament contains relatively few references to us actually loving God. If you read through the New Testament, very few references to us loving God. We have the ones we looked at, the three gospel accounts, all of the great commandment, which tell us to love God. And then he says that there are maybe 20 other passages that speak to us loving Christ. And he says if there's any significance to the fact that relative to other commands and other teachings, we see very little in the way of command or instruction to love God. He says, if any significance can be attached to that, it's that the New Testament writers were more preoccupied with the amazing love of God for us as sinful human beings rather than our love for him. In other words, they were fixated on the fact that God moved towards us, not at all that we moved toward him. And I would also add this, that the, maybe the New Testament writers didn't precisely say that we ought to be loving God because what we see pictured in the New Testament, New Testament is that the primary way that we show love for God, do you know what it is? It's loving one another. It's loving people. In fact, I immediately thought about Matthew chapter 25. In Matthew 25, there's this end of the world scene, this judgment scene and sheep and goats are coming up before, that's us, you know, people are coming up before God and, and the judgment comes down and, and those who are believers, thanks for feeding me, thanks for visiting me in prison, thanks for praying for me, thanks for supporting me. And they said, like, when do we ever do that to you, Jesus? When do we ever do it? And Jesus said, when you've done it to the least of these, my brothers, you've done it to me. We love God primarily by loving people. And in 1 John 4, in fact, the same chapter we've been working in here, verses 20 and 21, John makes the point that there are some people going around who are saying they love God, but they were hating people. He says, you can't say that you love God and then hate your brother. That's the litmus test for loving God. Do you love people? Now, again, that's the greater topic for next week as we talk about we love people. And as a church, our emphasis will always be on God's great love for us as the necessary prerequisite or precursor to us loving him and loving others. And so the target for us in this message is for us to think again as a church, as harvest. The target, the goal for us is to love as he loves. And so if I can come back to 1 Corinthians 13 again, and let's rewrite it one more time. Let's have one more alternate version. And let's, let's think about this in terms of our aspiration, our goal. Harvest is patient and kind. Harvest does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. Harvest does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Harvest does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Harvest bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Is that not the heart behind we love because he first loved us? We love God and we love people because he first loved us. And so we started off talking about how love is such a confusing topic for so many. Let the confusion clear the preaching, the examination of God's word today, and let us be a church that loves as God loves. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, again, we, uh, we are so grateful for your word. Father, that it was written into the lives of real people against a backdrop of real situations. And Father, the more we look at it, the more we understand that the world of 2,000 years ago filled with human beings who are sinful and who are also reaching for God is not that different than the world today. And so God, I pray that we would hear your word and be doers of it. That we would be striving this week to love you more and better, to understand who you are, and to love you on that basis. Help us, God, to love you with all the component parts of who we are, as individuals and also as a church. Father, we pray these things in Christ's name.